It's another week here on the Inside Inside Sales Show. How you doing, folks? How you been? It's been uh, it's been frantic. I got to tell you because obviously, as you might imagine, we uh, we just came through Q3, run a calendar year, and and now we're all in on Q4. Q4 is the as everybody knows it, right? It's like the last quarter in the football game. It's the last you know five minutes in that, you know, soccer match. It's, it's, or, or as we say here in Canada, it's the last two minutes in the hockey game. So you're like going all in to, 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 to hit that number. And that brings, what's interesting about that, what's interesting about that is that you're at this point of the year, as a sales professional, you're in one of two areas. You're either feeling really good about where you're at. You got to work it, but you're feeling good. Or you're in full on panic mode because you know you don't have the pipeline to have the actual, you know, deal volume and negotiation and sales process take place to close before the end of the year. Now, no judgment here. <laughs> they, they say the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. So if you're in the latter camp, you have a problem, and that's okay. We're going to help you fix that today. You're going to love the conversation. I've been there before. I really have. Uh, in fact, I would tell you, anybody who's not been there before is lying to you. Just they're outright lying to you. Now, when I got into sales, and I've shared this story before, I didn't go a traditional route, although I personally think in sales there is no traditional route. Everybody kind of falls into sales as a plan B, I think, or as a second career or what have you. But what was important was my background. So for those who haven't heard, my education is as a computer programmer. And I spent you know my first four, five, six years coding. And one of the toughest classes I had in school and university, and this is going to sound so stupid, but I actually, uh, I had to take the course over again because I failed it the first time. Don't mock me. Don't judge me. It was a course called systems design. And in systems design and, and, and coding is about, it's the whole part of the process of flow charting and, and figuring out what is the process. Or as some like to say, the process, schedule, schedule, process, process, Canada, US, you get the idea. And it's the whole idea of actually understanding you've got a scalable, repeatable, optimal process that actually achieves your stated goals. So when I started going into sales, I was in that situation where I was, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. I either didn't have the pipeline, I wasn't going to hit my number. And I realized that. And what was interesting was in that first sales job where I was selling photocopiers down the road, I was just, I was just another rep. You know, if I lasted six months, great. They were happy. And if I didn't, they just turfed me and they got the next guy. They didn't train me at all. Other than here's a manual, here's your product, here's your territory, go. It's, it was, I look back now and I'm like, it was just like the sales manager should have been shot. She was a wonderful person, but she should have been shot. I don't know how she stopped at night just doing that and was undermining her own success. I see that now looking back, but at the time I'm like, I'm failing, help me. And that was when I realized I didn't have the right process. And if I was going to succeed in sales, I had to take the same approach I did in coding that I did to selling. Sounds crazy. Yeah. And actually that relational, the relationship between coding and selling, who would have thought of that? Now that's just the stage. 
the first sales book I ever read. First one ever. Okay, so I was a big fan of Zig Ziglar, and I would listen to Zig's in you know the audio cassettes on my tape player in my minivan as I was selling my photocopiers door to door. But the first sales book I actually read was a book called Hope is Not a Strategy. You can check it up. You can still get it. It's totally outdated now. It was really for a complex enterprise sale. Um, it was actually pre-SaaS, if you can believe it. So there you go. But the premise is the same. Hope is not a strategy. I hope I hit my number isn't going to get you your number. So imagine with that as the backdrop, how excited I was to come across bulletproof selling. Bulletproof selling. I mean, just look at this. Systemizing sales. Systemizing sales, which is the whole idea of a process, right? We talked about that. And that jumped off the page for me. And I love, you're going to see some themes here because we're going to use the author. We're going to introduce you to the author shortly. Um, but he talks about the battlefield of business. So there's, there's a bit of a military metaphor there. And who, honestly, between you and I, who is, is there anybody better than processes and repeatable uh, procedures than the military? Their lives literally depend upon it. And what I loved about it was, Section one, article one in the table of contents says, trimming hope from your sales strategy. So if this is not karma, kismet, like all the alignment going on with my own personal story, then I don't know what is. So of course, of course, my friends, I had to bring the incredibly talented. I want to bring to you Sean Rhodes to the show. Sean, welcome, my friend. Thanks, Daryl. Really awesome to be here, sir. All the way from Tampa, Florida to the uh, frozen north of Canada. So we're having fun here. <laughs> we, we're we covering all the areas, brother. We got different yeah. politics. We got different climates. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> but we're united in sales, and I love that. So now, yep. Sean, I need you to set the stage for me about your background, what you do today, and what was your inspiration for this book? Because I've just shared a little story with you on me. I know there's a thousand listeners right now going, yep, that's me. I don't want to admit it, but I'm secretly listening. Tell me more. So for the, just for the audience, can you give us a little more background about you and the book? Yeah, absolutely. And I've secretly been there as well without enough pipeline. Bills are coming due every month. Commission checks not coming as regularly as I'd like them. So I'm absolutely in line with that journey. Before I got to the point of being a salesperson, though, uh, what gave me my background in the military was I was a war correspondent in the U.S. Marine Corps. And the very unique job there because I had the free reign to move inside and outside of any unit across all four branches of the uh, U.S. Armed Services down here. And a lot of time overseas, most, multiple tours in Iraq, which was where I got a lot of my combat experience from. And my role there was to study best practices, to study systems, to capture them and to share them both internally for the Department of Defense and to share that with the world if it wasn't something that we wanted to classify so that the world would know about the great work that our men and women were doing over there overseas and had a lot of opportunity to work with Canadian forces, too. You guys are awesome. So uh, congratulations there. But the sales piece of this really came in for me when I was finally in sales after the military. And I was trying everything to try and make number, to try and get people on the phone, to try and get them interested in the product or service I was selling. And I was not getting any success whatsoever because like a lot of salespeople, like you talked about in your early days as a salesperson, I was just told to go out there and sell. But nobody was telling me how to go about doing that. So I had to really understand in order to survive, to apply the same principles that I learned from these troops in combat in the military, 
where they would spend. And for those of us that are catching this live video, um, what you're going to see right now I'm projecting on the screen is something that you've seen in every war movie. If you've ever seen a war movie for our podcast listeners, a bunch of people stacked up outside of a door. They enter into it with their rifles. They're checking for uh, threats. They're looking at you know each other's backs. They're really operating as a singular unit, almost like a one mind, so to speak. And as I saw this happen in combat time and time again, I realized these folks were essentially bulletproof. Not because they were brilliant, they weren't Mensa members, they didn't have superpowers. They were covering all of their angles inside of these buildings because of all of the times that their predecessors hadn't been bulletproof. So when you think about applying this to a sales team, what if, what if you could begin capturing what was working and what doesn't work inside of your industry for yourself? And what if your teammates were doing that as well? And then what if you were coming together to share that information, to build great processes and systems so that you didn't end up like Daryl and I did, and like I'm sure you probably have been to at some point in your sales career, sitting there wondering, what do I do now? I've got leads, I've got a territory, I've got a product, but that's all I've been given. I hate for anybody to find themselves in that situation. So that's why we stood up Bulletproof Selling to try and help people remove hope from their sales strategy. It was so interesting. Uh, on the weekend, I was watching this show on, I don't know, it was the National Geographic Channel, the Smithsonian Channel, what have you. Um, but it was talking about uh, a variety of warships, actually, and some of the battles they had been in. And in this one particular case, it was World War II, and there was uh, a destroyer, not a destroyer, but a smaller ship, not a cruiser, but beneath that, excuse my lack of military lingo uh, or familiarity. But the point being was it was tasked to position itself at a certain point where uh, the Japanese would have totally attacked them. They'd already lost four ships previously assigned to this. And this particular commander uh, won their battle, and they won it because he took a slightly different strategy. That was the first point. But what was of interest was a point they said in telling the narrative, which I think applies exactly to what you're saying right now. And so in this particular case, the, the they literally had, according to the story, I may get these numbers slightly wrong, but you get the gist. Uh, they had approximately 25 Japanese planes trying to kamikaze themselves into the ship. And that was how they took out the previous four. Um, and so one of the things that the commander had done before taking up position in the, in, in the ocean there was he had trained his, his, uh, his troops, his, his sailors nonstop about what to do in the case of a fire or explosion or what have you. And, and there was a lot of bitching and moaning, a lot of complaints at the time. This was <laughs> not common. And the reason he believes they survived, because I think they actually got hit by, I think, eight planes. They took the rest out, wow. but they got hit by eight planes. And they said any other ship, and they, and they dragged their sorry ass back to port with their lower third, you know, half submerged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he said the reason they survived was because when the planes did hit the ship, nobody had to think about their job. They just reacted because they were so systemized. They knew the system. They knew the drill. There was no think, thinking. They just did it. So when you talked about these guys, you know, they're not Mensa members, you know, they, they just, but they're bulletproof because they've got these systems. They've eliminated hope as a strategy. So that was what I, 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 I connected with so much. And I was thinking about you again, books. If, you ha if folks haven't seen it, the book is called bulletproof selling. It's by Sean Rhodes. Get it on Amazon. Um, the thing I want to talk to you about is this, Sean. 
And then we can get into some, some of your takeaways and advice as a teaser, and then everybody can go and buy the book and get the rest of the story. One of the biggest complaints I hear from reps when we try to train them on the system so they are bulletproof, and this is why you want to do it, is, um, is we get this pushback saying this, that's not how I sell. Right. Just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. Right. And, um, or yeah, I know you think that's cool, but I don't agree with that. Or I don't like, you know, the approved script or I don't like the Mm -hmm. approved templates or whatever it might be. And just let me do my thing. Uh, I'm good. I'm a professional. I'm senior. Just back off. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and of course, lo and behold, they fail or they struggle or they underachieve. So talk to me about how you approach systemizing value. So hope it's not a strategy because right in your book, you go into sales systems. See, I mean, these are some of the t- topics, folks. I'm not making this up. I mean, I, I'm geeking on this stuff. I fully apologize. Systemizing value, campaign systems, eliminating prospect attrition. Oh, come on. I saw that one. I'm like, I got to read that one. Uh, <laughs> fueling your bulletproof pipeline. And that's the thing. We're going to Q4. You should have had a bulletproof pipeline. Now, again, we're not beating you up, but what can you learn from this? You should have had a bulletproof pipeline. Um, so let's talk. Where do you want to go on this? Do you want to talk systems? Do yeah, you want to talk pipeline? Where you- let's start with the first objection you mentioned, which I think if we don't get that out of the way, we could talk systems all day, Daryl. And I know you and I would have a lot of fun doing it, but it wouldn't land right for a lot of salespeople. Cause like you said, I don't need systems or the script that I was given, it, it works sometimes, but I really have to make it my own. I've got to, I've got to really make it unique to me. So let's talk about the value that systems have, even if you want to just build them for the way that you sell, because I know that every salesperson out there that's doing well, thinks they're a special snowflake. Nobody could replicate what they do. They They've got the secret sauce. So let's talk about how to begin at least implementing your own systems. And that way, everything that we do from that point on, Daryl, with pipelines, with prospect attrition, people will be able to make it their own. So a, a, a little kind of a graph that I love showing. And for the folks that aren't catching this via video, I'm going to explain it to you. Imagine that you're, you're looking at a simple XY axis graph, okay? On the bottom, in numbers is percentages, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, all the way up to 100. Now that bottom line represents the amount of attention that you have to place on the task at hand. Whether that task is picking up the phone and dialing, dealing with objections, uh, customizing that email, making sure that you're providing value. We spend our day as salespeople trying to be as present in the moment as we can with our prospects because they're people and they all have unique needs. Now, the challenge there is if we're spending 100% of our attention on the task at hand, it allows very little room for innovation. And this is why, Daryl, we see senior salespeople able to innovate at an incredibly high level. It's not because they're especially brilliant, although I know they like to think they are, and often they are, right? But it's really because they've got the reps in. To your point about that battleship commander, he had trained his people, his sailors, exactly what to do to the point where they didn't have to focus on the next task at hand. They knew where to get the fire extinguishers. They knew how to man their arms to make sure they were taking those ships down. Well, the challenge we have now and the magic of being able to actually leverage a system is that we're trying to accomplish more innovation with it. So instead of the fallacy that systems force you to move in lockstep and we're not in the military, why would we do this? The less focus that you have to place on what you're doing in any given moment the more you can rely on your systems, the more you can innovate, which is what's on that vertical level, the amount of innovation. So to round this graph up, if you're only focusing 10% on the task at hand because you've got the other 90% systemized, 
Now you can place 90% of your attention in the moment being able to innovate at an incredibly high level, which as we all know, especially the more complex your sales get, the more you can innovate, the more you can sell. So first, let's start there with the mindset of it doesn't force you to move in lockstep. You can customize them for the way that you sell. But the brilliance of being able to put that outside of your head into a process and into a system is now you can just let the system run the mechanics of what you're doing and allow you to be able to swerve, turn, pivot inside of every single sale. So I'm going to pause there, Daryl, because I know you probably have some experiences dealing with that as well. I do. And it's so interesting, right? Because really, I'm just going to I'm going to paraphrase slightly different what he just said, because, you know, we start off hope is not a strategy. Classic cliche. Work smarter not harder, mm-hmm. which is really what I'm hearing you say. And there's yeah. systems to help you do that. And the systems should be so just automatic, an autopilot, just built into it, like that World War II analogy we just used, that you save time and effort because it just happens and you know what to do. Systems do not mean that you can't be your own. You can't express your own approaches and desires. One of the words that Sean used there was innovate. Innovate is the definition of going outside of the prescribed formula so that you can achieve greater results. And that's the point. People think they're going to be stifled uh, and not allowed to innovate, do their own thing if they follow the systems. The reality is following the systems gives you more time to innovate. So cause and effect here. So I love that. Okay, so now talk to me about your approach to or your guidance uh, your your advice your lessons learned your experiences on the whole idea of building uh, and, and and growing and fueling the pipeline while at the same time and I love this eliminate you know I could, I'd be happy if I could just reduce but he talks about eliminating prospect <laughs> attrition yep so let's talk about pipelines um, the thing that I've, because I get to coach salespeople all over the world, Daryl, and the first thing we notice about fixing a pipeline is helping salespeople understand what the definition of a pipeline actually is. Because most salespeople are treating their pipelines as funnels. And what I mean by that is they're given leads or they go in source leads, they put 100 in the top, they'll run them through whatever outreach sequence they have, however many steps, however many channels of communication, just to convert a few at the bottom. And so the question is, if you're qualifying your leads at all, it means they're likely going to buy from somebody because they're qualified buyers, at least as they enter your funnel. But what happens to the other 95 that you're not closing? They're going to go off and buy somebody else's platform, somebody else's software. So if we're really trying to eliminate prospect attrition, we have to stop thinking of our bucket of leads as a funnel and instead start thinking about them as a pipeline. So a great analogy to help you wrap your head around this is imagine that you're walking into a home site, uh, you know, a construction site where a home is being built. You've seen the plumbing laid out in, you know, just on top of the foundation. And as you look around, you notice the inlet for the water. There's a utility or a well somewhere, some way the water is getting into these pipes. But as you look around the job site, you notice there's no outlet for the water. There's no sinks. There's no drains. There's nowhere for the water to go. Now, let's say that these pipes are built with some futuristic material that can handle an unlimited amount of pressure, because that would really what this would require. And then as you're getting in there, you realize that if somebody turns the water on, it just circulates inside of all of these pipes, potentially forever. Well, if we can create something like that inside of our CRMs, which all CRMs can do, but very few salespeople have taken the time to actually build, what we can do then is create stages of these pipes that represent the different stages of where a prospect would be inside their buying cycle. And as they move through one pipe, 
you launch all your sequences, you do your outreach. Well, if they don't convert or they don't get back to you, they don't just float off into the ether to buy from someone else that's more efficient or more dedicated to the sale. Rather, they just flow into another outreach sequence that is defined by the type of prospect they are, how much you know about them, or how responsive they are. Well, if you can create something like this inside of your CRM, what that means is you can keep an unlimited amount of prospects in play, potentially forever, so that no one ever just floats off because you forgot to reach back out to them. And we can talk about the mechanics of uh, how to eliminate prospect attrition within a pipeline like that, but I think it's important for salespeople to understand it's possible to build a pipeline that actually circulates leads rather than I've got a couple of leads, I'm going to reach out to them, and if they don't get back to me, I'll try to just get more leads. Because those folks will buy from somebody if they're qualified. So one of our verticals that we serve, Sean, is in the, in the insurance industry. And mm-hmm. a lot of the insurance industry, they made their money by going to employers, ABC Inc., sitting down uh, all day and having employees come through one at a time and say, you know, how's your health? How's your life? You know, let me show you the policy. The company's going to help you out a little bit here. And, you know, it's great. And then when COVID hit, everyone worked from home, that disappeared. Mm-hmm. And what we found ourselves having to do in the sales process, we're trying to help them become, you know, survive the COVID from a working and sales point of view was change those bad habits. And the bad habits were exactly what you just described. The insurance reps would get a lead and, and they would talk to them once or send an email or do a couple phone calls and that's it. And, 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 and they would go, I missed my number. It was the leads. The leads sucked. I need more leads. Buy me more leads. Facebook campaigns, whatever it might be. And uh, and we had to say to them, it doesn't work that way. There's a couple of things you need to know. Uh, step number one is any kind of uh, prospecting to build your pipeline requires, on average, nine to 12 touches. And it varies by industry. Uh, could be less, could be more. Uh, but on average, nine to 12, um, before you can even get an initial conversation going with these folks. But then, to your point, you know, they're in this pipe, which is I'm having an active conversation. And they say to you, oh, I just signed up with the, I just renewed the incumbent. So, okay. So now I'm going to shift you over to another pipe, which is I'm going to keep on nurturing you throughout the year. And then 12 yep. months from now, I'm going to come back to you. Well, actually, probably nine months from now, I'm going to come back to you and say, your renewal should be coming up. We need that's to talk right. more. So <laughs> I mean, you know, but that's the whole point of saying a lead is never dead, even when they buy somebody else's product. You know, we always buy another product. A good example here, folks, are car salesmen. You think car salesmen, you go, oh, car, that's got to be a tough slog. You know what? There's a lot of 30-plus-year sales reps because once they survive the first five years, they have this base of people who are always getting the next car, the next car. Then they yeah. need a car for their kid or their grandkid or what have you. So it's the whole idea of they're working their various pipes. And I love the point that you're saying you can have different pipes, different sequences, different cadences um, that you can do in different types of outreach to always keep them alive, which will, of course, eliminate a lot of that attrition. That's brilliant. So let's let's talk about that attrition then within the pipe. Um, And we're going to be talking about something you're very familiar with, which is campaign sequences, because I know a lot of the work you do is designing those and developing them for companies. So there are three places that we found prospect attrition happens within an outreach sequence. And I've experienced all of these and lost a lot of money because of them. So it's my pleasure now to be able to share it with your audience. The first place that a prospect will disappear in a campaign sequence is before the campaign sequence even starts. So let's say that marketing has developed a a great outreach campaign for you. They've gotten leads. They've gotten inquiries. 
Well, if you never launch the sequence on this lead, if they just live as an account inside your CRM, then you'll never even know they exist because that task will never come up in front of you. Unless you really remember, oh yeah, Jim Smith, uh, I was supposed to do something with that account. You'll never see them. So that's the first place, before the campaign sequence even starts. Even if your campaign sequence isn't as complicated as the kind that you build, Daryl, even if it's just a phone call, if you never get the task to make the phone call, that lead is never going to have any action. Second place that we find a lead will just disappear out of an outreach sequence is anywhere in the middle. And what that looks like is you not having a next step on that account. So let's say you do get a hold of Jim Smith or Sally Jane or whoever it is you're trying to sell to, and they say, great, send me some information. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you if we're interested, which I hear every single day, all day. <laughs> well, if I don't own the next step on that account, whether I use that through one of my pre-programmed sequences in the CRM that I have, or I just make a note on the calendar, make sure to you know reach back out to Jim. Well, that lead will disappear because if we leave the ball of communication in our prospect court, anything else could become more important than them returning your call, no matter how interested they were in your product or service on the phone. And the final place that we find prospects will disappear is at the end of a campaign sequence. And this is why pipelines, as you and I have described it, Daryl, are so valuable. Because if I run all my outreach steps, whether that's three, five, 10, or 15 outreach steps, and I don't move that account somewhere, well, as the automatic sequencing ends on that account, as I don't get any more tasks for emails or phone calls or direct messaging, that account will live at the bottom of that campaign sequence, potentially forever, with no outreach, which means they will buy from somebody, but it probably won't be us. So if you can seal each of those places that are leaks, essentially, inside of a pipeline, you can keep your prospects in play from one campaign sequence to another until they're in their buying window and you've proven through your outreach sequence that in the value you're providing that, hey, you are the one to really provide that product or service. So let me ask you this question. We talked a lot about sequences or cadences, which for those who aren't aware, that's what VanillaSoft does. We're a sales engagement platform. And by the way, this is totally coincidental. I had no idea I was going to talk about this today, which I love what he's doing. Um, I want to ask you this. Sean, it's the age-old question. Templates and scripts. Yeah. Are you pro-templates and scripts? Or are you anti-templates and scripts? And why? So I'm going to go back to the uh, folks that I saw survive really stressful situations on the battlefield. They'd never been inside the houses that they were going into. They'd never experienced the type of enemy that they were going to encounter that day. But if they didn't walk in there with some kind of a template for what to do and when, their chance of surviving that would go down tremendously. So in the field of sales, it's not using a template or a script verbatim through the entire conversation, but it's knowing that here are the things that I need to learn from this prospect in order to move them further into my pipeline. Here's the best practices in the openings that my team and I have decided really work well in my industry with the type of prospects that we're targeting. And not just to have one that you read verbatim, because we all know what it sounds like when someone reads a script to us over the phone. It happens too often, unfortunately. But without those templates and scripts to just act as lanes, as buffer lanes, to keep us on the track to the sale, then we are, by definition, hoping that we remember what's worked in the past, hoping we remember what email really got us a great response two years ago when we were really killing our numbers. But if we don't take the time to actually get that stuff somewhere where we can use it again, customize it for the prospect that we're sending it to that day, or customize it to the person that's about to be on the phone or in the Zoom meeting or in person, then unfortunately we're relying on hope. And that means that we are being in that sink or swim situation that we found ourselves in early in our sales career, but probably should never be in again if we're using systems in the way that you're talking about, Daryl. All right. I love that analogy. It's funny when you're doing that. 
And given your answer, I was thinking back to how we opened up today's conversation, and you were you shared that video footage um, of you know the uh, the folks in the military, you know, entering a a, a house and abode, uh, not knowing what's behind that door, and how they worked off of each other and had each other's backs. And I know I'm stretching here, folks, but work with me on this one. <laughs> That's a templated play. Yes, you know what is. they're doing there is trained and taught, and that's what gives them the comfort of uh, uh, of knowing what to expect, what the outcomes are. They can forecast the the outcome, mm-hmm. just like you can forecast your pipeline prospecting. Now, if something goes wrong in that play, someone's injured or what have you. They can adapt and revise that template at play so the next time it's even better. And they do every time. That's the first part. Templates are living and breathing. But the second part there is this. When the template at play, somebody breaks down because something happens inside that house they didn't expect, now they're going back on their training and they're reacting, which is how we started off with this whole World War II book and Japan and everything else. It's the training is what comes down to it. So let me ask you this, Sean. What, this is a completely open-ended question. It's not in your book. <laughs> but what, if I'm a sales rep and I want to react, what are some good training skills or courses or tactics or teachers above and beyond, Sean Rhodes, that we or you can recommend to help them evolve to the next level so that they're not sitting here in Q4 going, son of a gun, I'm in trouble. I'd say that if you're in Q4 and you're in the son of a gun, I'm in trouble phase, which a lot of us have been in in any quarter of the year. It doesn't just have to wait till Q4. Um, I'm going to say, Daryl, that each sales rep can be their best teacher. But here's what so few sales reps take the time to do as they're encountering a challenge, like I don't have enough leads to reach out to, or I just heard an objection that shut the call down and you know I, I wasn't able to make that sale, might likely never be able to get to that prospect again. If we don't take the time to capture those challenges as they occur, even if you're capturing them on a sheet of paper on the side of your desk, and then making the time to go do the research to find out, is there someone that's overcome something like this in the past in my network, on my team, you know, with VanillaSoft, in any platform that you can reach into to go get the solution that you can try next time? Or if you're experiencing something that you need a solution for now, like I don't have enough leads to reach out to, uh, boss is getting upset because I'm just never going to make number here. What can I do today that would solve this problem in some small way and then take action on it? So it's a matter of capturing the problem and then putting a plan in place to take action on it, which we devoted an entire section to in Bulletproof Selling as well, because it's so important that individuals and teams take the time to adapt their systems. Otherwise, and you mentioned this, Daryl, what worked in 2019, 2018, or 30 years ago before uh, you know, a, a software as a service even existed isn't going to be as applicable today. But if we really want to keep up on the cutting edge of our market and the, the changes that are happening in our prospects' lives, we have to make the time to capture our challenges and build either adaptations to our systems or entirely new systems if we want to move forward in a way that allows us to be fully present and innovate as sales will always require us to do. So I love that, guys. Just, you know, I've said this before. I'm saying it again. I know I repeat myself, but let me rephrase what Sean just said. He's advocating that you become, you are self-aware. You park your ego and you, you have these, the self-awareness to say, I am ill-equipped with a certain skill, a certain knowledge. And now I'm going to proactively go 
and equip myself with the right skills and knowledge by seeking out others who can coach and guide me on this or researching it myself and doing a, you know, a B experiment until I get it all figured out. And that's my, my, my second one. First one is self-awareness. Second one is learning is earning. If you're going mm-hmm. to learn how to offset your, your lack of skill, then you will get better and you will earn. Learning is earning, which means you'll have a Q4 pipeline and you won't be panicking right now. The first thing you should be doing on that front is going and buying Bulletproof Selling Sean Rhodes. Sean, best way to get a hold of you, my friend. You can check me out at bulletproof-selling.com. We've got a five-minute sales assessment there that will generate a sales system for whatever part of your pipeline you need improvement in. We also have a podcast as well that Daryl was kind enough to be a guest on. It's also called Bulletproof Selling. And every single week, we're turning out new sales systems. So make sure you follow us over on LinkedIn. All right. That's it. Folks, we're done. I keep on telling you, I'm coming back the next week, and lo and behold, I do. Guess what? I'm doing it again next week. Tune in. It's going to be fun. We've got some amazing guests in the pipeline because I've been prospecting them just for you. We're going to close those deals together. Until then, tell your friends. If they haven't, they should subscribe. Give us a great rating here on the Inside Inside Sales Show. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.